This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay. And the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. Uh, They've got some really good summer deals. And check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments. Maybe some patch chords. Cool. You're listening to KZOM. Olean Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, T.B. Spitzer and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZON. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby. Section 22. Other Great Eruptions. Hast thou observed the ancient tract that was trodden by wicked mortals who were arrested on a sudden whose foundation is a molten flood, who said to God, Depart from us. What can Shaddai do to us? Though he had filled their homes with wealth, far from me be the counsel of the wicked. The righteous beheld and rejoiced. The innocent laughed them to scorn. Surely their substance was carried away and their riches devoured by fire. Such is Dr. Henderson's translation of Job 22, 15-20. By many, the passage has been supposed to refer to the destruction of the cities of the plain and used to support the theory that a volcanic eruption was the means of their overthrow. If the theory were true, the catastrophe is the earliest historic eruption. A brief statement of the reasons for the belief may interest the reader. The entire Dead Sea Valley is depressed far below the level of the sea. From the Dead Sea to the head of the Red Sea is a well-marked trough, supposed to indicate that the Jordan once emptied into the Red Sea. The adjacent Sinaitic Peninsula is a volcanic region, which may have been in eruption when the Israelites passed it. Dr. Robinson reports watermarks left high on the cliffs, far to the south of the Dead Sea. Fragments of lava have been picked up among the salt crusts and bituminous deposits on the shores. In short, the region is one in which, at some time, volcanic action occurred. It lies between two great volcanic centers, Sinai and the volcanic region of Arabia and Syria. The question really is whether any disturbance occurred there at so late a period as the destruction of Sodom. 
The idea advanced by several thoughtful men is that in the bituminous plain occupied by the cities, fissures opened and flames and cinders issuing rained upon the inflammable surface, speedily destroying the cities, which sunk with the earth till the sea covered them. Such cases, minus the bitumen, have several times occurred. And again, the sea might have existed before and merely have been extended by the convulsion. Such is the substance of the theory. Cases in support of it are not wanting. The city of Euphemia in Calabria was so swallowed up in 1638. Kircher, who was near at the time, tells how he and his companions, unable to keep their feet during the violent earthquake, lay upon the ground till the paroxysms were somewhat abated. Rising and looking for Euphemia, only a frightful black cloud was seen. It slowly cleared away, revealing a loathsome and putrid lake. No trace of the city or its inhabitants was ever found. In the island of Trinidad is a vast lake of pitch, of which the Indian legend tells the origin. The words are Kingsley's. Once that dark and loathly pitch lake was a garden bright and fair, and the Shamas from the mainland built their palm ajupas there. There they throve and there they fattened, hale and happy, safe and strong. Past the live-long days and feasting, past the nights and dance and song. Till they cruel grew and wanton, till they killed the colibris. Then outspoke the great good spirit who can see through all the trees. The spirit proceeded to remind the shamas of all the good things he had provided for them, how he had allowed them unlimited use of all things which could be of any possible good to them, how he had even been patient with their thanklessness. Only the colibris, or hummingbirds, useless to the shamas, he had reserved for himself that he might have pleasure in their beauty and happiness. The story continues. But the shamas' ears were deafened, blind their eyes and could not see how a blissful Indian spirit lived in every colibri. Livid, forgetting pain and sorrow, ever fair and ever new, whirring round the dear old woodland, feeding on the honeydew. Then one evening roared the earthquake, monkeys howled and parrots screamed, and the Garans at morning gathered here as men who dreamed. Sunk were gardens, sunk ajupas, hut and hammock, man and hound, and above the Shama village boiled with pitch the cursed ground. The salient points of the evidence being presented, the reader may draw his own conclusions. Perhaps the cities were fired in the manner suggested. Perhaps lightning ignited the bitumen. But it is generally supposed that their site lies beneath the sea. After the account given of Vesuvius, the reader will no doubt be surprised to learn that this noted mountain cannot rank as more than a respectable fourth-rate volcano. It will require but a brief comparison with others to show that this is the case. By far the largest volcano in Europe, and next to Vesuvius, the most noted, is Mount Etna, in the island of Sicily. It was well known to the ancients and appears to have been in eruption from the most remote historic times. Diodorus Siculus records that a violent eruption caused an adjacent district to be deserted by its inhabitants before the Trojan War. Thucydides tells of three eruptions between the colonization of Sicily by the Greeks and the Peloponnesian War, 431 BC. Notwithstanding the great antiquity of the records of this mountain, but little detail is known of its earlier eruptions. The first of which any extended account exists is the great outbreak of 1669. The convulsion began with a tremendous earthquake. Many villages and towns in the adjacent districts were leveled to the earth. 
In the plain of St. Leo, a fissure six feet wide and 12 miles long and of unknown depth opened from north to south with a terrific crashing noise and extended nearly to the top of the mountain. Flashes of intense light poured from it. Five other parallel fissures afterwards opened, one after the other, emitting smoke and the most horrid bellowings, which were heard to the distance of 40 miles. This explains the manner in which dikes or banks of lava are thrown up amid other rocks. The light emitted by these fissures would indicate that they were, to a certain height, filled with glowing lava. The lava during this eruption, having overwhelmed and destroyed 14 towns, some of them containing three or 4,000 inhabitants, at length arrived at the walls of Catania, a populous city situated 10 miles from the volcano. These walls had been raised 60 feet high towards the mountain in order to protect the city in case of an eruption. But the burning flood accumulated against the wall so as to fill all the space around and below that part and finally poured over it in a fiery cataract, destroying everything in that vicinity. From Catania, the lava continued its course until it reached the sea, a distance of 15 miles from its source, in a current about 1,800 feet broad and 40 feet deep. As an illustration of the intense heat of volcanic matter, the canon Recupero relates that in 1766, he ascended a small hill composed of ancient volcanic matter in order to observe the slow and gradual manner in which a current of liquefied fire advanced from Etna. This current was two and a half miles broad, and while he stood observing it, two small threads of lava issuing from a crevice detached themselves from the main stream and approached rapidly towards the eminence where he and his guide were standing. They had only just time to escape when they saw the hill on which they stood a few minutes before and which was 50 feet high, entirely surrounded, and in about 15 minutes entirely melted down into the burning mass so as to be incorporated with and move on along with it. According to Hitchcock, 77,000 persons perished during the eruption of 1769, and 84 square miles were covered with lava. The slowness with which lava cools may be inferred that 10 years later, workmen endeavoring to sink a shaft through the bed were forced to abandon the work when near the bottom by reason of the heat. While this was Etna's greatest outbreak, several of terrible destructiveness have occurred since. In 1693, an eruption was accompanied by earthquake shocks, which in three days did more damage than the lava. Catania was almost destroyed. Great sea waves rolled in upon the wreck. The vessels in the harbor were dashed against each other or upon the beach. The ringing of the bells and the roar of the mountain and sea was mingled with the cries of thousands of unfortunates struggling in the ruins. Not less than 16,000 people perished in Catania alone. In 1755 occurred an eruption which is memorable for the great flood which attended it. Immense quantities of snow and ice accumulated above the summit were melted by the intense heat and the waters rushed down in a column 30 feet deep and one and three quarters miles wide into the plain below. The lower portion of the valley was filled with the debris. Those who were not buried in the rubbish were swept out to sea. The total loss of life is not exactly known but amounted to many thousands. Second in volume to the eruption of 1669, but very slightly destructive, is the eruption of 1852-53. It began August 20, 1852, and continued nine months. The united width of the lava streams was two miles, 
with a depth from 8 to 16 feet, piled up in some places to 100 feet. It reached to near Zarafana, almost 6 miles, descending 3,500 feet in 16 days. The Val de Bove, from the upper part of which it proceeded, looked like a sea of fire. Explosions as of artillery were frequently heard, and the scoria were sent to great heights. The intense heat set fire to the trees in the vicinity. In January 1865, a considerable eruption took place from an immense fissure on the northeastern slope of the mountain. Seven active craters developed along the fissure, sending out a lava stream one and a half miles wide. Three other eruptions have taken place from Etna since 1853, but save some damage to property, these have been comparatively unimportant, save from a geological standpoint. One began in 1874 from a fissure on the north side, but suddenly ceased. Professor Silvestri, after examining the locality, asserted that the next eruption would take place from this same fissure. Five years later, his assertion was verified, large streams of lava being sent out with heavy showers of ashes and sand. Large areas of forest were destroyed, and the stream drew alarmingly near some populous villages, but stopped not far from a small river. The area of the lava bed was about 750 acres, the volume being about 23.5 million tons. Etna's last eruption was in May 1886. A few houses were destroyed, but no lives were lost. Etna and the adjacent Lapare Islands exhibited unusual activity during the entire 17th century, having a total of 14 eruptions, as many as are recorded in all their previous history. The next century witnessed 15 outbursts from Etna, and during the present one, there have been 11. It will be noticed that both Vesuvius and Etna seem to have reached their maximum activity at the close of the last century. The same is true of the volcanoes of Iceland. This island, which is as large as Ireland, is built up entirely of volcanic matter. It doubtless began with a single great submarine volcano, but today it has at least 13 active vents. It presents us with the most tremendous outpour of matter in the history of the world. For 700 years, there has not been an interval of 40, and seldom of more than 20, without eruptions and earthquakes in some portion of the island. Single eruptions of Mount Hecla have lasted six years. Often during violent earthquakes, old mountains have disappeared, new ones have been raised up, rivers turned from their courses or dried up altogether. The old Norseman who discovered the island might much more appropriately have named it Fireland. Doubtless had his ancestors known the island would they have chosen it as the home of the terrible fire giants. But Iceland is the realm of both frost and fire, and there is no more romantic or painful chapter in history than the story of this hardy and spirited race to maintain their foothold in the face of such terrible odds. Those who hold that a nation's progress and stamina are in proportion to its material advantages would have to make an exception in favor of blood. The plucky Norsemen have held their own in this region for nine centuries, nor is there any deterioration. No nation can today show a better intellectual or moral condition than these poor but hardy islanders, yet there is not a region of the world that has been more frequently or terribly scourged than this semi-barren island. The best known volcano in Iceland is Mount Hecla, which ranks with Etna and Vesuvius in fame. It is not the highest nor most remarkable of Icelandic volcanoes, but the frequency of its eruptions, together with the fact that it may be easily reached, have brought it to the front.
It is 5,000 feet high and lies but 35 miles from the sea. The larger portion of the material thrown out by it consists of slag, cinders, pumice, and ashes, the slope of its cone being about 35 degrees. It has nothing answering to the customary crater. The eruptions break from fissures in its sides, and in consequence, it may emit several streams or showers at once. Hecla has been in eruption about 30 times since its character was first known, and has at times made fearful havoc. Its last great outbreak was in 1878. Hecla has adjutants in this volcanic field that are more savage and relentless than the Generalissimo. One of the most destructive outbursts of recent times occurred in the Vatna district in 1875. In this region, about 60 miles by 115, is a very nest of volcanoes. The convulsion lasted several months, the entire region being active, and great numbers of people perished. So great was the destruction of property, crops, and flocks that the people, reduced to starvation, were compelled to appeal to Britain and Denmark for assistance. This has happened more than once in Iceland's history. But far up in the impenetrable deserts of the interior is a mountain which has seldom shown any activity. But when in full blast, its power is unsurpassed by any volcano on the globe. This is the fearful Skapter Jokul, or Skapter Mountain. A single instance of its power will suffice. One of the most stupendous outbreaks recorded in history is that of Skapter Jokul in 1783. In the quantity of lava ejected, it is hardly surpassed by any single eruption, and few disturbances of the sort have surpassed it in fatality. Immense volumes of ashes were hurled into the air, spreading over the whole island in dense clouds. Streams were poisoned by the minerals and alkalis thrown out. Immense numbers of sheep and cattle perished. Thousands of acres of pasture lands were ruined. When the grass was not killed, it often was rendered poisonous like the water by the mineral dust falling upon it. The hills were dotted with the decaying carcasses. The air was filled with horrible stench. The ashes fell in such volumes into the ocean that the fish deserted the coast. The flying clouds of dust spread to Europe. The appalling horror of the scene can hardly be imagined. Death stalked abroad in his most repulsive form. The river Skapta, a considerable stream, was for a time completely dried by a torrent of liquid fire. This river was about 200 feet broad and its banks from four to 600 above the level of the water. This defile was entirely filled for a considerable distance by the lava, which crossed the river by the dam thus formed and overflowed the country beyond, where it filled a lake of considerable extent and great depth. This eruption commenced on the 11th of June. On the 18th of the same month, a still greater quantity of lava rushed from the mouth of the volcano and flowed with amazing rapidity, sometimes over the first stream, but generally in a new course. The melted matter having crossed some of the tributary streams of the Skapta completely dammed up their waters and caused great destruction of property and lives by their overflow. The lava, after flowing for several days, was precipitated down a tremendous cataract called Stapafoss, where it filled a profound abyss, which that great waterfall had been excavating for ages, and thence the fiery flood continued its course. On the 3rd of August, a new eruption poured forth fresh floods of lava, which, taking a different direction from the others, filled the bed of another river, by which a large lake was formed and much property and many lives destroyed. 
The effect of this dreadful calamity may in some measure be imagined when it is known that, although Iceland did not at that time contain more than 50,000 inhabitants, there perished 9,000 human beings by this single eruption, making nearly one in five of the whole population. Part of them were destroyed by the burning lava itself, some by drowning, other by noxious vapors which the lava emitted, and others in consequence of the famine caused by the showers of ashes which covered a great portion of the island and destroyed most of the vegetation. The fish, also, on which the inhabitants depended, in a great measure for food, entirely deserted the coast. The quantity of lava which Captain Jokal emitted during this eruption was almost beyond belief. The two principal branches were respectively 40 and 50 miles long. The branch which crossed the Skapta was from 12 to 15 miles wide. The width of the other was 7 miles. The usual depth was 100 feet, but 2 and 300 were frequent, and where the streams dashed across gorges or narrow valleys, the depth was 6 or 700. It would be quite safe to estimate the average depth at 150 feet. These two principal streams were then sufficient to cover 1,000 square miles to a depth of 150 feet. Contrast this with the 20 million cubic meters estimated to have been poured forth in one of the great Vesuvius eruptions. This last would cover one square mile to a depth of 25 feet. Vesuvius sinks to an insignificance that is pitiable. Its great outbreak produced but one six thousandth as much as the single eruption of Skapter Jokal. Such calculations may give us a comparative estimate of the two. But no figures can give us any conception of the force required to elevate such a stream of melted rock through the crust of the earth. And if we compare the resultant fatality, it is clear that this great convulsion in a very sparsely settled island destroyed more lives than all the outbursts of Vesuvius in its densely populated neighborhood. This eruption of Skaptor was preceded by several outbreaks in the sea, some of them close to the shore, some many miles from land. Such phenomena have become tolerably familiar. Livy informs us that a disturbance of this kind near Sicily, occurring with similar phenomena at the time of Hannibal's death, so terrified the Romans as to induce them to proclaim a day of supplication to the gods to avert their displeasure. Santorin in the Grecian archipelago was a similar production, and in 1831 an island was thrown up to the southwest of Sicily, where previous soundings had shown a depth of 600 feet. It was preceded by a violent spouting of steam and water. The sea around was filled with floating pumice and dead fish. The crater reached a height of 200 feet, being three miles in circumference. Its circular basin was full of boiling, dingy red water. It continued active three weeks and then slowly sank, leaving a dangerous reef 11 feet below the surface, while a single black volcanic rock projected from the sea near the center of the reef. It is known as Graham's Island. Thus we see that volcanic action is not confined to the land and that the areas affected are continually shifting. Jerulo in Mexico affords an example of the way in which new volcanoes are constantly being formed. In the parallel of the city of Mexico exist five volcanoes, extending in a line across the country as if thrown up along some immense fissure or subterranean fault, extending from sea to sea. Of these, Popocatepet is perhaps the largest, and Jurello the most recent basaltic mountains that bounded it. This region, the Malpais, 
had no volcano within 80 miles and lay 2,600 feet above the sea. In June 1759, alarming rumblings were heard in the earth, which were succeeded by severe earthquakes. These phenomena lasted several weeks to the great consternation of the inhabitants. In September, it seemed that quiet was restored when suddenly, on the night of the 28th, a fearful subterranean noise was again heard, fissures opened, and hot stones were thrown out. Part of the plain rose up like an immense bubble to the height of 1,600 feet. Imagine the astonishment of the natives when morning showed them a mountain where the night before was a level plain. It almost seemed as though some magic had transported them to another land. Smoke and ashes spouted forth. Five smaller cones were thrown up, the least of which was 300 feet in height. The plain was dotted with thousands of small conical mounds, called by the natives ornitos, or ovens. Each emitted vapor for a time, but at length all the upheavals, save Dorello, ceased action. Though the plain remained so hot as to be uninhabitable for many years, Jorello continued to throw out lava several months and has been in more moderate action ever since. In some respects, the terrible outbreak of Skapter Jakal has been several times exceeded. While almost alone in the immense quantity of lava thrown out, we have seen that great streams of lava are not accompanied by the most violent explosions. In the number of lives destroyed, Skapter has also been exceeded. But if Iceland had been as densely populated as Ireland, which it equals in area, the convulsion might have destroyed half a million or more. One of the best examples of the force of steam on a smaller scale is seen in the eruptions of volcanoes is to be found in the geysers of Iceland. These line a strip of ground 100 yards wide and about a quarter of a mile in length. The ground is dotted with numerous dark apertures and conical mounds, from which clouds of steam ascend continually. Of these, the little geyser is no longer active, being merely a pool of still hot water. The great geyser is periodically active, and the stroker, or churn, may be excited at any time by throwing a quantity of earth into it. As a matter of course, these boiling springs never do any damage, the quantity of water thrown out being of no consequence. The water holds in solution a vast quantity of siliceous matter, which is deposited around the mouth of the geyser, forming sometimes a saucer-shaped basin, sometimes a nipple-shaped mound. From the rate at which the deposits are made, it is estimated that the Great Geyser is about 1060 years old. One of the most tremendous outbursts of which we have any authentic account occurred in the island of Sumbawa. It is one of the Maluka Islands, and the mountain from which the outbreak occurred is called Tamboro. This eruption commenced on the 5th of April, 1815, but was most terrific on the 11th and 12th of that month, nor did it cease entirely until some time in the following July. The explosion so much resembled the firing of heavy cannon at a distance that the people of many vessels at sea supposed there was a great naval engagement within hearing, but could not imagine what nations were engaged. The commanders of some ships and several English forts gave orders to prepare for battle, though they were several hundred miles distant from the mountain. At Sumatra, these tremendous explosions were distinctly heard, though not nearer than 970 miles from Tamboro. They were also heard at Ternate, in the opposite direction from Sumatra, at the distance of 720 miles from the mountain. So immense in quantity was the fall of ashes that at Bima, 40 miles from the mountain, the roof of the English resident's house was crushed by the weight, and many other houses in the same town were rendered uninhabitable from the same cause.
at Java, 300 miles distant. The air was so full of ashes that from this cause at midday, it is said, the darkness was so profound that nothing like it had ever before been experienced during the most stormy night. Along the coast of Sambala, the sea was covered with floating lava, intermixed with trees and timber, so that it was difficult for vessels to sail through the mass. Some captains, though at a long distance at sea, mistook this mass for land and sent out their boats in order to ascertain the safety of their situations. The sea, on this and the neighboring coast, rose suddenly to the height of 12 feet in the form of immense waves, and as they retired, swept away trees, timber, and houses with their inhabitants. All the vessels lying near the shore were torn from their anchoring and cast upon the land. Violent whirlwinds carried into the air men, horses, cattle, trees, and whatever else was in the vicinity of the mountain. Large trees were torn up by the roots and carried into the sea. But the most calamitous part of the account still remains, for such were the tremendous effects of the burning lava, the overflowing of the sea, the fall of houses, and the violence of the whirlwind, that out of 12,000 inhabitants on this island, only 26 individuals escaped with their lives all the rest being destroyed in one way or another. The whole island was completely covered with ashes or other volcanic matter. In some places, the bottom of the sea was so elevated as to make shoals where there was deep water before, and in others, the land sunk down and was overflown by the sea. Adding those who were killed on other islands, the total death roll was over 20,000. This entire region is one of wonderful activity. Mount Api, in the island of Banda, in the same group, has had 12 violent eruptions in 234 years, and indeed it is hardly ever really quiet. The volcano of Abo, in the island of Sanguar, broke out in 1711, burying a large number of villages and cinders, covering extensive areas of forest and plain, and destroying many thousands of people. This same volcano burst forth suddenly in March 1856, vomiting torrents of mud, streams of lava, and clouds of ashes and scoria, doing almost as much mischief as on the former occasion. In the island of Timor, a gigantic volcano, long known as the Peak, began a violent eruption in 1638. When the convulsion was over, the mountain had disappeared, partly blown away, partly sunken, and the site is to this day covered by a great lake. End of section 22. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Glary. Glary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Glary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, They've got saxophones, trumpets, drums. They've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20-watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under $80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a glary. 
Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Tell your Back to the show. Ship you down to South Agua. You can buy that shirt now. It's in the shop. Uh, Link in the show notes. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby. Section 22 Other Great Eruptions Hast thou observed the ancient track that was trodden by wicked mortals who were arrested on a sudden whose foundation is a molten flood who said to God, Depart from us. What can Shaddai do to us? Though he had filled their homes with wealth, far from me be the counsel of the wicked. The righteous beheld and rejoiced. The innocent laughed them to scorn. Surely their substance was carried away, and their riches devoured by fire. Such is Dr. Henderson's translation of Job 22, 15-20. By many, the passage has been supposed to refer to the destruction of the cities of the plain, and used to support the theory that a volcanic eruption was the means of their overthrow. If the theory were true, the catastrophe is the earliest historic eruption, A brief statement of the reasons for the belief may interest the reader. The entire Dead Sea Valley is depressed far below the level of the sea. From the Dead Sea to the head of the Red Sea is a well-marked trough, supposed to indicate that the Jordan once emptied into the Red Sea. The adjacent Sinaitic Peninsula is a volcanic region, which may have been in eruption when the Israelites passed it. Dr. Robinson reports watermarks left high on the cliffs, far to the south of the Dead Sea. Fragments of lava have been picked up among the salt crusts and bituminous deposits on the shores. 
In short, the region is one in which, at some time, volcanic action occurred. It lies between two great volcanic centers, Sinai and the volcanic region of Arabia and Syria. The question really is whether any disturbance occurred there at so late a period as the destruction of Sodom. The idea advanced by several thoughtful men is that in the bituminous plain occupied by the cities, fissures opened and flames and cinders issuing rained upon the inflammable surface, speedily destroying the cities, which sunk with the earth till the sea covered them. Such cases, minus the bitumen, have several times occurred. And again, the sea might have existed before and merely have been extended by the convulsion. Such is the substance of the theory. Cases in support of it are not wanting. The city of Euphemia in Calabria was so swallowed up in 1638. Kircher, who was near at the time, tells how he and his companions, unable to keep their feet during the violent earthquake, lay upon the ground till the paroxysms were somewhat abated. Rising and looking for Euphemia, only a frightful black cloud was seen. It slowly cleared away, revealing a loathsome and putrid lake. No trace of the city or its inhabitants was ever found. In the island of Trinidad is a vast lake of pitch, of which the Indian legend tells the origin. The words are Kingsley's. Once that dark and loathly pitch lake was a garden bright and fair, and the Shamas from the mainland built their palm ajupas there. There they throve and there they fattened, hale and happy, safe and strong, past the live-long days and feasting, past the nights and dance and song, till they cruel grew and wanton, till they killed the colibris, then outspoke the great good spirit who can see through all the trees. The spirit proceeded to remind the shamus of all the good things he had provided for them, how he had allowed them unlimited use of all things which could be of any possible good to them, how he had even been patient with their thanklessness. Only the colibris, or hummingbirds, useless to the shamus, he had reserved for himself, that he might have pleasure in their beauty and happiness. The story continues. But the shamus' ears were deafened, Blind their eyes and could not see how a blissful Indian spirit lived in every colibri. Livid, forgetting pain and sorrow, ever fair and ever new, whirring round the dear old woodland, feeding on the honeydew. Then one evening roared the earthquake. Monkeys howled and parrots screamed, and the Garans at morning gathered here as men who dreamed. Sunk were gardens, sunk ajupas, hut and hammock, man and hound and above the Shama village boiled with pitch the cursed ground. The salient points of the evidence being presented, the reader may draw his own conclusions. Perhaps the cities were fired in the manner suggested. Perhaps lightning ignited the bitumen. But it is generally supposed that their site lies beneath the sea. After the account given of Vesuvius, the reader will no doubt be surprised to learn that this noted mountain cannot rank as more than a respectable fourth-rate volcano. It will require but a brief comparison with others to show that this is the case. By far the largest volcano in Europe, and next to Vesuvius, the most noted, is Mount Etna, in the island of Sicily. It was well known to the ancients and appears to have been in eruption from the most remote historic times. Diodorus Siculus records that a violent eruption caused an adjacent district to be deserted by its inhabitants before the Trojan War. 
Thucydides tells of three eruptions between the colonization of Sicily by the Greeks and the Peloponnesian War, 431 BC. Notwithstanding the great antiquity of the records of this mountain, but little detail is known of its earlier eruptions. The first of which any extended account exists is the great outbreak of 1669. The convulsion began with a tremendous earthquake. Many villages and towns in the adjacent districts were leveled to the earth. In the plain of St. Leo, a fissure six feet wide and 12 miles long and of unknown depth opened from north to south with a terrific crashing noise and extended nearly to the top of the mountain. Flashes of intense light poured from it. Five other parallel fissures afterwards opened, one after the other, emitting smoke and the most horrid bellowings, which were heard to the distance of 40 miles. This explains the manner in which dikes or banks of lava are thrown up amid other rocks. The light emitted by these fissures would indicate that they were, to a certain height, filled with glowing lava. The lava during this eruption, having overwhelmed and destroyed 14 towns, some of them containing three or 4,000 inhabitants, at length arrived at the walls of Catania, a populous city situated 10 miles from the volcano. These walls had been raised 60 feet high towards the mountain in order to protect the city in case of an eruption. But the burning flood accumulated against the wall so as to fill all the space around and below that part and finally poured over it in a fiery cataract, destroying everything in that vicinity. From Catania, the lava continued its course until it reached the sea, a distance of 15 miles from its source, in a current about 1,800 feet broad and 40 feet deep. As an illustration of the intense heat of volcanic matter, the canon Recupero relates that in 1766, he ascended a small hill composed of ancient volcanic matter in order to observe the slow and gradual manner in which a current of liquefied fire advanced from Etna. This current was two and a half miles broad, and while he stood observing it, two small threads of lava issuing from a crevice detached themselves from the main stream and approached rapidly towards the evidence where he and his guide were standing. They had only just time to escape when they saw the hill on which they stood a few minutes before and which was 50 feet high, entirely surrounded, and in about 15 minutes entirely melted down into the burning mass so as to be incorporated with and move on along with it. According to Hitchcock, 77,000 persons perished during the eruption of 1769, and 84 square miles were covered with lava. The slowness with which lava cools may be inferred that 10 years later, workmen endeavoring to sink a shaft through the bed were forced to abandon the work when near the bottom by reason of the heat. While this was Etna's greatest outbreak, several of terrible destructiveness have occurred since. In 1693, an eruption was accompanied by earthquake shocks, which in three days did more damage than the lava. Catania was almost destroyed. Great sea waves rolled in upon the wreck. The vessels in the harbor were dashed against each other or upon the beach. The ringing of the bells and the roar of the mountain and sea was mingled with the cries of thousands of unfortunates struggling in the ruins. Not less than 16,000 people perished in Catania alone. In 1755 occurred an eruption which is memorable for the great flood which attended it. Immense quantities of snow and ice accumulated above the summit were melted by the intense heat and the waters rushed down in a column 30 feet deep and one and three quarters miles wide into the plain below. The lower portion of the valley was filled with the debris. 
Those who were not buried in the rubbish were swept out to sea. The total loss of life is not exactly known, but amounted to many thousands. Second in volume to the eruption of 1669, but very slightly destructive, is the eruption of 1852-53. It began August 20, 1852, and continued nine months. The united width of the lava streams was two miles, with a depth from 8 to 16 feet, piled up in some places to 100 feet. It reached to near Zarafana, almost six miles, descending 3,500 feet in 16 days. The Val de Beauve, from the upper part of which it proceeded, looked like a sea of fire. Explosions as of artillery were frequently heard, and the scoria were sent to great heights. The intense heat set fire to the trees in the vicinity. In January 1865, a considerable eruption took place from an immense fissure on the northeastern slope of the mountain. Seven active craters developed along the fissure, sending out a lava stream one and a half miles wide. Three other eruptions have taken place from Etna since 1853, but save some damage to property, these have been comparatively unimportant, save from a geological standpoint. One began in 1874 from a fissure on the north side, but suddenly ceased. Professor Silvestri, after examining the locality, asserted that the next eruption would take place from this same fissure. Five years later, his assertion was verified, large streams of lava being sent out with heavy showers of ashes and sand. Large areas of forest were destroyed, and the stream drew alarmingly near some populous villages, but stopped not far from a small river. The area of the lava bed was about 750 acres, the volume being about 23.5 million tons. Etna's last eruption was in May 1886. A few houses were destroyed, but no lives were lost. Etna and the adjacent Lapare Islands exhibited unusual activity during the entire 17th century, having a total of 14 eruptions, as many as are recorded in all their previous history. The next century witnessed 15 outbursts from Etna, and during the present one, there have been 11. It will be noticed that both Vesuvius and Etna seem to have reached their maximum activity at the close of the last century. The same is true of the volcanoes of Iceland. This island, which is as large as Ireland, is built up entirely of volcanic matter. It doubtless began with a single great submarine volcano, but today it has at least 13 active vents. It presents us with the most tremendous outpour of matter in the history of the world. For 700 years there has not been an interval of 40, and seldom of more than 20, without eruptions and earthquakes in some portion of the island. Single eruptions of Mount Hecla have lasted six years. Often during violent earthquakes, old mountains have disappeared, new ones have been raised up, rivers turned from their courses or dried up altogether. The old Norseman who discovered the island might much more appropriately have named it Fireland. Doubtless had his ancestors known the island would they have chosen it as the home of the terrible fire giants. But Iceland is the realm of both frost and fire, and there is no more romantic or painful chapter in history than the story of this hardy and spirited race to maintain their foothold in the face of such terrible odds. Those who hold that a nation's progress and stamina are in proportion to its material advantages would have to make an exception in favor of blood. The plucky Norsemen have held their own in this region for nine centuries, nor is there any deterioration. No nation can today show a better intellectual or moral condition 
than these poor but hardy islanders. Yet there is not a region of the world that has been more frequently or terribly scourged than this semi-barren island. The best known volcano in Iceland is Mount Hecla, which ranks with Etna and Vesuvius in fame. It is not the highest nor most remarkable of Icelandic volcanoes, but the frequency of its eruptions, together with the fact that it may be easily reached, have brought it to the front. It is 5,000 feet high and lies but 35 miles from the sea. The larger portion of the material thrown out by it consists of slag, cinders, pumice, and ashes, the slope of its cone being about 35 degrees. It has nothing answering to the customary crater. The eruptions break from fissures in its sides, and in consequence, it may emit several streams or showers at once. Hecla has been in eruption about 30 times since its character was first known, and has at times made fearful havoc. Its last great outbreak was in 1878. Hecla has adjutants in this volcanic field that are more savage and relentless than the Generalissimo. One of the most destructive outbursts of recent times occurred in the Vatna district in 1875. In this region, about 60 miles by 115, is a very nest of volcanoes. The convulsion lasted several months, the entire region being active, and great numbers of people perished. So great was the destruction of property, crops, and flocks that the people, reduced to starvation, were compelled to appeal to Britain and Denmark for assistance. This has happened more than once in Iceland's history. But far up in the impenetrable deserts of the interior is a mountain which has seldom shown any activity. But when in full blast, its power is unsurpassed by any volcano on the globe. This is the fearful Skapter Jokul, or Skapter Mountain. A single instance of its power will suffice. One of the most stupendous outbreaks recorded in history is that of Skapter Jokul in 1783. In the quantity of lava ejected, it is hardly surpassed by any single eruption, and few disturbances of the sort have surpassed it in fatality. Immense volumes of ashes were hurled into the air, spreading over the whole island in dense clouds. Streams were poisoned by the minerals and alkalis thrown out. Immense numbers of sheep and cattle perished. Thousands of acres of pasture lands were ruined. When the grass was not killed, it often was rendered poisonous like the water by the mineral dust falling upon it. The hills were dotted with the decaying carcasses. The air was filled with horrible stench. The ashes fell in such volumes into the ocean that the fish deserted the coast. The flying clouds of dust spread to Europe. The appalling horror of the scene can hardly be imagined. Death stalked abroad in his most repulsive form. The river Skapta, a considerable stream, was for a time completely dried by a torrent of liquid fire. This river was about 200 feet broad and its banks from four to 600 above the level of the water. This defile was entirely filled for a considerable distance by the lava, which crossed the river by the dam thus formed and overflowed the country beyond, where it filled a lake of considerable extent and great depth. This eruption commenced on the 11th of June. On the 18th of the same month, a still greater quantity of lava rushed from the mouth of the volcano and flowed with amazing rapidity, sometimes over the first stream, but generally in a new course. The melted matter having crossed some of the tributary streams of the Skapta completely dammed up their waters and caused great destruction of property and lives by their overflow. The lava, after flowing for several days, 
was precipitated down a tremendous cataract called Stapafoss, where it filled a profound abyss, which that great waterfall had been excavating for ages, and thence the fiery flood continued its course. On the 3rd of August, a new eruption poured forth fresh floods of lava, which, taking a different direction from the others, filled the bed of another river, by which a large lake was formed and much property and many lives destroyed. The effect of this dreadful calamity may in some measure be imagined when it is known that, although Iceland did not at that time contain more than 50,000 inhabitants, there perished 9,000 human beings by this single eruption, making nearly one in five of the whole population. Part of them were destroyed by the burning lava itself, some by drowning, other by noxious vapors which the lava emitted, and others in consequence of the famine caused by the showers of ashes which covered a great portion of the island and destroyed most of the vegetation. The fish, also, on which the inhabitants depended, in a great measure for food, entirely deserted the coast. The quantity of lava which Captain Jokal emitted during this eruption was almost beyond belief. The two principal branches were respectively 40 and 50 miles long. The branch which crossed the Skapta was from 12 to 15 miles wide. The width of the other was 7 miles. The usual depth was 100 feet, but 2 and 300 were frequent, and where the streams dashed across gorges or narrow valleys, the depth was 6 or 700. It would be quite safe to estimate the average depth at 150 feet. These two principal streams were then sufficient to cover 1,000 square miles to a depth of 150 feet. Contrast this with the 20 million cubic meters estimated to have been poured forth in one of the great Vesuvius eruptions. This last would cover one square mile to a depth of 25 feet. Vesuvius sinks to an insignificance that is pitiable. Its great outbreak produced but one six thousandth as much as the single eruption of Skapter Jokal. Such calculations may give us a comparative estimate of the two. But no figures can give us any conception of the force required to elevate such a stream of melted rock through the crust of the earth. And if we compare the resultant fatality, it is clear that this great convulsion in a very sparsely settled island destroyed more lives than all the outbursts of Vesuvius in its densely populated neighborhood. This eruption of Skaptor was preceded by several outbreaks in the sea, some of them close to the shore, some many miles from land. Such phenomena have become tolerably familiar. Livy informs us that a disturbance of this kind near Sicily, occurring with similar phenomena at the time of Hannibal's death, so terrified the Romans as to induce them to proclaim a day of supplication to the gods to avert their displeasure. Santorin in the Grecian archipelago was a similar production, and in 1831 an island was thrown up to the southwest of Sicily, where previous soundings had shown a depth of 600 feet. It was preceded by a violent spouting of steam and water. The sea around was filled with floating pumice and dead fish. The crater reached a height of 200 feet, being three miles in circumference. Its circular basin was full of boiling, dingy red water. It continued active three weeks and then slowly sank, leaving a dangerous reef 11 feet below the surface, while a single black volcanic rock projected from the sea near the center of the reef. It is known as Graham's Island. Thus we see that volcanic action is not confined to the land and that the areas affected are continually shifting.
Jorullo in Mexico affords an example of the way in which new volcanoes are constantly being formed. In the parallel of the city of Mexico exist five volcanoes, extending in a line across the country as if thrown up along some immense fissure or subterranean fault, extending from sea to sea. Of these, Popocatepetl is perhaps the largest, and Jorullo the most recent basaltic mountains that bounded it. This region, the Malpays, had no volcano within 80 miles and lay 2,600 feet above the sea. In June 1759, alarming rumblings were heard in the earth, which were succeeded by severe earthquakes. These phenomena lasted several weeks to the great consternation of the inhabitants. In September, it seemed that quiet was restored when suddenly, on the night of the 28th, a fearful subterranean noise was again heard, fissures opened, and hot stones were thrown out. Part of the plain rose up like an immense bubble to the height of 1,600 feet. Imagine the astonishment of the natives when morning showed them a mountain where the night before was a level plain. It almost seemed as though some magic had transported them to another land. Smoke and ashes spouted forth. Five smaller cones were thrown up, the least of which was 300 feet in height. The plain was dotted with thousands of small conical mounds, called by the natives ornitos, or ovens. Each emitted vapor for a time, but at length all the upheavals, save Dorello, ceased action. Though the plain remained so hot as to be uninhabitable for many years, Jorello continued to throw out lava several months and has been in more moderate action ever since. In some respects, the terrible outbreak of Skapter Jakal has been several times exceeded. While almost alone in the immense quantity of lava thrown out, we have seen that great streams of lava are not accompanied by the most violent explosions. In the number of lives destroyed, Skapter has also been exceeded. But if Iceland had been as densely populated as Ireland, which it equals in area, the convulsion might have destroyed half a million or more. One of the best examples of the force of steam on a smaller scale is seen in the eruptions of volcanoes is to be found in the geysers of Iceland. These line a strip of ground 100 yards wide and about a quarter of a mile in length. The ground is dotted with numerous dark apertures and conical mounds, from which clouds of steam ascend continually. Of these, the little geyser is no longer active, being merely a pool of still hot water. The great geyser is periodically active, and the stroker, or churn, may be excited at any time by throwing a quantity of earth into it. As a matter of course, these boiling springs never do any damage, the quantity of water thrown out being of no consequence. The water holds in solution a vast quantity of siliceous matter, which is deposited around the mouth of the geyser, forming sometimes a saucer-shaped basin, sometimes a nipple-shaped mound. From the rate at which the deposits are made, it is estimated that the Great Geyser is about 1060 years old. One of the most tremendous outbursts of which we have any authentic account occurred in the island of Sumbawa. It is one of the Maluka Islands, and the mountain from which the outbreak occurred is called Tamboro. This eruption commenced on the 5th of April, 1815, but was most terrific on the 11th and 12th of that month, nor did it cease entirely until some time in the following July. The explosion so much resembled the firing of heavy cannon at a distance that the people of many vessels at sea supposed there was a great naval engagement within hearing, but could not imagine what nations were engaged. The commanders of some ships and several English forts gave orders to prepare for battle, though they were several hundred miles distant from the mountain. 
At Sumatra, these tremendous explosions were distinctly heard, though not nearer than 970 miles from Tomboro. They were also heard at Ternate, in the opposite direction from Sumatra, at the distance of 720 miles from the mountain. So immense in quantity was the fall of ashes that at Bima, 40 miles from the mountain, the roof of the English resident's house was crushed by the weight, and many other houses in the same town were rendered uninhabitable from the same cause. At Java, 300 miles distant, the air was so full of ashes that from this cause at midday, it is said, the darkness was so profound that nothing like it had ever before been experienced during the most stormy night. Along the coast of Sambala, the sea was covered with floating lava, intermixed with trees and timber, so that it was difficult for vessels to sail through the mass. Some captains, though at a long distance at sea, mistook this mass for land and sent out their boats in order to ascertain the safety of their situations. The sea, on this and the neighboring coast, rose suddenly to the height of 12 feet in the form of immense waves, and as they retired, swept away trees, timber, and houses with their inhabitants. All the vessels lying near the shore were torn from their anchoring and cast upon the land. Violent whirlwinds carried into the air men, horses, cattle, trees, and whatever else was in the vicinity of the mountain. Large trees were torn up by the roots and carried into the sea. But the most calamitous part of the account still remains, for such were the tremendous effects of the burning lava, the overflowing of the sea, the fall of houses, and the violence of the whirlwind, that out of 12,000 inhabitants on this island, only 26 individuals escaped with their lives, all the rest being destroyed in one way or another. The whole island was completely covered with ashes or other volcanic matter. In some places, the bottom of the sea was so elevated as to make shoals where there was deep water before, and in others, the land sunk down and was overflown by the sea. Adding those who were killed on other islands, the total death roll was over 20,000. This entire region is one of wonderful activity. Mount Api, in the island of Banda, in the same group, has had 12 violent eruptions in 234 years, and indeed, it is hardly ever really quiet. The volcano of Abo, in the island of Sanguar, broke out in 1711, burying a large number of villages and cinders, covering extensive areas of forest and plain, and destroying many thousands of people. This same volcano burst forth suddenly in March 1856, vomiting torrents of mud, streams of lava, and clouds of ashes and scoria, doing almost as much mischief as on the former occasion. In the island of Timor, a gigantic volcano, long known as the Peak, began a violent eruption in 1638. When the convulsion was over, the mountain had disappeared, partly blown away, partly sunken, and the site is to this day covered by a great lake. End of section 22. Do you like the TV series Tales from the Crypt? Are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from Tales from the Crypt? This podcast is for you. The Good Evening Kitties podcast, where I, Melissa, your ghostess with the mostess, recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews. The Good Evening Kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms. Check it out today.